Turn to John chapter 20. Um, I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Do Not Disbelieve, But Believe. And you'll see I lifted that title right from the words of the passage we're going to be studying this morning. In 1972, Josh McDowell published what has become the standard for Christian apologetics among lay people particularly. It's a book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That book was originally published in 1972. Um, I have my own copy, and that is, this is a revision from 1999. It went through another revision in 2017, I think. And again, this is a great book to look at um, evidence that demands a verdict. In fact, here's how the publisher describes the book. It's a book that provides an expansive defense of Christianity's core truths, rebuttals to some recent and popular forms of skepticism, and insightful responses to the Bible's most difficult and misused passions, passages. Excuse me. It invites readers to bring their doubts and doesn't shy away from the tough questions. So if you or if you have friends or acquaintances that have some skepticisms about the faith, some questions about Christianity, this would be a good resource to help guide you in your conversation. The reality is this. The evidence that we have for Christianity in general, and specifically the evidence we have for the central event of Christianity, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is overwhelming. The resurrection of Christ is not just a fanciful idea. It's not just wishful thinking. It is an attested to fact. And as such, it is evidence that demands a verdict. But here's the deal. Look at this next slide. Evidence alone is often not enough to convince people to respond to the truth. Have you found that to be true in your own life? Evidence, overwhelming evidence, is often not enough to convince people to respond to the truth. Eyewitness testimony uh, often doesn't lift people from their firmly held positions. I'll give you an example. If evidence were enough to convince people of the truth, the cigarette industry would be bankrupt. Isn't that true? I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Smoking causes cancer, mouth disease, gum disease, pulmonary disease, emphysema, and a host of other health issues. But people close their eyes to the caution labels. This is the caution label in England. Smoking can cause a slow and painful death. People see it, and they just close their eyes. Their physician tells them, you know, you really need to quit smoking, and they'll just nod and keep on smoking. If evidence were enough to convince people of the truth, then people wouldn't make this decision. The reality is the New Testament provides satisfactory and sufficient evidence for the claims of Christ. Satisfactory and sufficient evidence that any thinking, rational, honest person could conclude that the apostles claims that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead is true. Well, the passage before us today examines someone who had skeptics, skepticism, someone who had doubts. He was skeptical about the other disciples' claim of resurrection, that Jesus was in fact alive. Oh, he heard their testimony. He'd heard them say that they saw him alive. And what did he say? Basically, I'll believe it when I see it. Who is this? Thomas, often referred to as Doubting Thomas. And after Jesus gives Thomas 
evidence that demands he make a verdict, Thomas is then called to faith by Jesus saying, do not disbelieve, but believe. Well, let's look at our focal passage. We're going to begin reading in verse 24 and read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We should be thankful for Thomas. We should be thankful for people like Thomas who ask honest questions. Only in John's gospel are we given extended information about this disciple by the name of Thomas. He's mentioned in the other three gospel accounts, but only in passing in the list, in the roster of the disciples. John actually gives us a little insight into his character, into his personality, maybe kind of how he thinks and how he's wired. The first time we find John recording Thomas speaking and saying something is actually back in chapter 11. Here's the story. They hear that Lazarus is sick unto death, and Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus has in fact died, so we're gonna go to Bethany to be with the family. Now, Bethany, you need to know, is very close to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital. It's the center of all political and religious authority. And it is from Jerusalem that all the attacks and all the threats of killing toward Jesus had come. And Jesus is saying, let's go back near Jerusalem. And so what does Thomas say? Thomas, chapter 11, verse 16, says this. Let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> That's Thomas. He's kind of fatalistic. He's realistic. He understands the risk. He understands the very real threat of returning close to Jerusalem. Jesus, they've already tried to stone you in the temple. They've already tried to kill you. They've already tried to take you out, and we're going back there again? Okay, we're all going, and we're all going to die with him. That's Thomas. John mentions him again in chapter 14. Uh, you may remember that occasion. Jesus is telling them very clearly that he's going away. He's going to be leaving them. And when he goes away, he's going to prepare a place for them. And then Jesus says this in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. And I just imagine all the disciples looking at each other. You know, you do, do you know where how we get? And so Thomas kind of raises his hand. Excuse me, Jesus. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? Uh, as I was thinking about this, I kind of thought back to 11th grade Algebra 2 class. 
I can remember being in 11th grade and my Algebra 2 teacher being up there at, this, at the blackboard just writing out some theorems and explaining how these theorems worked and everything and then she says, okay, y'all turn to page 79, there's a lot of problems there, you work this theorem out on those problems. And we're just kind of glazed over, right? Anybody remember that feeling? What is this teacher talking about? But then there's a member of the class, good old Tommy. Tommy raises his hand. Excuse me, I don't have a clue what you just explained. Now, we're so thankful Tommy was uh, willing to ask that question because it's the same question all of us had. Excuse me, Mrs. Clunch, what are you talking about here, right? And so we're thankful for Tommy. The disciples were probably thankful for Thomas. Jesus, you say we know where you're going. You say we know how to get there. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? That's Thomas. Of all the disciples, Thomas was the one willing to say what everybody else was thinking. Thomas was the one who was willing to ask the question somewhat pessimistically, somewhat fatalistically, but realistically. And before we give too much credit to the other disciples who were believing, remember, they had already seen the very evidence, the very proof Thomas says he wanted to see. And so here he is a week later, and he's just asking for proof about their basically remarkable, unbelievable claims that Jesus was alive. And Jesus, in his grace, gives him the proof he was asking for. This passage is not so much about doubting as much as it is about transformation. It's not so much about skepticism, it's so much about the change that Jesus can bring in somebody's life. So there's four things from this text I want us to consider this morning. The first one is this, a place of disappointment. Place of disappointment. Thomas was one of the 12, and he wasn't with them when Jesus came the first time. You know, people who have doubts, people who have skepticisms about the Bible, about the gospel, those doubts are often developed even in a season of disappointment. When you've experienced some disappointment in your own life, you may have developed from that season of disappointment some doubts. Now, that's not the only reason why people doubt. That's not the only reason why people can be skeptics. People can be skeptical for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Some people are skeptical regardless of the clear and straightforward evidence about the truth that you can present before them. It's not that they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. It's a choice. Again, not because there's not sufficient evidence, but because of the hardness of their heart. Not all doubt is the same. Some people have skepticism, some people have doubt simply because of ignorance. They haven't been informed, they haven't been told, they haven't been taught. They're not aware of the truth. Sometimes doubt is the result of a clear, conscious, moral choice. You don't believe because you don't want to believe, because believing might require some change in your life. That's what the highly esteemed atheist Aldous Huxley concluded. He put it forward as his driving motivation for his well-acclaimed atheism. He wrote this in his work entitled Ends and Means. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning 
and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a system, certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. So Huxley voiced what many people experience. I've said it before. When a college student shows up as a freshman on the college campus coming from a thoroughly Christian background and you see over the years begin to abandon the faith, it's not so much that the uh, atheistic professor has warped his mind, it's that he's begun doing things and living a certain way that believing in God will not allow, so he abandons the faith so he can live the way he wants to live. It's exactly what Aldous Huxley said. Doubt can also be the result of a hundred little choices. You make a small choice here and a small choice there. Maybe you make a choice to overwork. Maybe you make a choice to neglect your family. Maybe you make a choice to shut off the warnings of those who see the trajectory you're on. Maybe you make a choice, worse of all, to not repent of your sin. And all these dozens, sometimes hundreds of choices eventually lead you to the choice where you say, you know what, I never really believed to begin with. It's all a bunch of baloney. And you abandon the faith. Doubt can also arise from a pain, from a crisis, from a loss, from a season of difficulty. You have a close loved one who dies unexpectedly. If you go through a serious injury, if you experience an accident, global war, these kind of crises can get people to begin to question the existence of God. Now, not all doubt resonates from the same place. Thomas's doubt, again, I'm putting forward, I believe it's coming from a place of disappointment. I want you to think about this. Two weeks earlier from this event was Palm Sunday. It's two weeks earlier. What was Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday looked like the appropriate and obvious conclusion of the previous three years. Think about what Thomas had seen the previous three years. Thomas was one of the 12. He had a front row seat to all that Jesus had said and all that Jesus had done. Thomas was in the boat during the storm when they had to wake up Jesus and Jesus said to the storm, peace, and all of a sudden the sea is calm. Thomas was one of the ones with the basket walking around the people, filling it up to overflowing after Jesus blessed the five loaves and two fish. Thomas saw that. Thomas saw the blind receive their sight. Thomas saw the lame walk, and Thomas saw miracle of miracles, the dead Lazarus come back from the dead after four days of death. So Palm Sunday seemed like the appropriate coronation of the king of Israel. As Jesus is riding in on the foal of a donkey, an obvious fulfillment of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. 
as they are waving the palm branches before him. Thousands upon thousands of people, waving of the palm branches was a practice they did for a military conqueror. As they're taking their cloaks and their coats and they're laying them on the ground in front of Jesus, a sign of submission to his rule and his authority. As they're proclaiming messianic titles, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thomas has to be thinking, ah, this is where we were leading. This is the coronation of the king. Jesus, we've hooked our wagon to you, and we are following you to rule the land. From Palm Sunday, you move to Thursday. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the horde of soldiers shows up to arrest Jesus. Thomas must have been thinking, he's going to come out of this. He's the Messiah. He's standing before Pilate. Pilate orders that he be scourged. He's beaten and bloodied. Thomas has to be thinking, of all I've seen, I know Jesus is going to come out of this. He's hanging on a cross, nailed there. Okay, Jesus, now is the time. Like Elijah, call fire down from heaven, consume the adversaries. And then surely Thomas thought when the sky went black at midday, when the earth quaked, when the temple curtain tore in two from top to bottom, this is it. He's about to exact his vengeance. And the next thing Thomas sees is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea taking his limp, dead body off the cross. Thomas had been around. He'd seen dead bodies before. They prepared his corpse for burial, put it in the tomb, and sealed it with a stone. This one in whom he had hoped and dreamed. He had to be thinking, did I just waste the last three years of my life? I put everything on hold for this guy. He's dead. He's in the tomb. And so forgive me for not believing your wishful thinking about him being alive, other disciples. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. In fact, look again at verse 25. The other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. He said, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I want some proof. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, sometimes Thomas is given a bad rap. Again, these other disciples had already seen the empty grave. These other disciples had already seen the exact same evidence he was asking for. Now, we're not privy to the whole conversation. We may just only see parts of it. Perhaps when they told him Jesus is alive, he asked them, how do you know he's alive? Well, we saw the wounds. We saw the nail prints. We saw the side. And so he's just responding, I want to see the same thing. I want to see the same evidence. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I see it with my own two eyes. I want some convincing proof. And Jesus says, you want proof? (laughs) I'll give you proof. That leads to the second thing I want us to see. Number two, proof displayed. Proof displayed. Look at verse 26 and 27 again. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. A week has passed. 
They're in presumably the same room, the same house they were in the previous week. The doors are locked just like they were the previous week. But this time, unlike the previous week, Thomas is there with them. And we see the exact same repeat appearance. Jesus just miraculously shows up in the room. He's there. And then he says the exact same thing he said a week earlier. Peace be with you. There are several things I want us to consider about this moment of Jesus showing proof to Thomas there in that locked room. For one, Thomas had not yet abandoned his friends. And that's good. His friends had not yet abandoned Thomas. And I think there's a point of application here for us. If you have a friend who is thinking about abandoning the faith, don't you abandon them. Stay with them. Field their questions. Listen to their concerns. Don't ditch that friend. Keep them hanging around. The second thing I'd point out is this, that Jesus does not mind repeating himself. He says the exact same thing. He does the exact same thing. Think of the compassion and kindness of Jesus. He reveals himself over and over again in the same way, saying the same thing. This is the kindness of our Lord. And the other thing I find fascinating here is the, the Lord's compassion and his divine omniscience. Every single point of proof that Thomas demanded, Jesus answered. Look at this chart I put together that shows the proof Thomas demands and the proof Jesus displays. Thomas says, unless I see in his hands, what does Jesus say? Hey, Thomas, see in my hands. Unless I place my finger, what does Jesus say? Put your finger here. Unless I place my hand, okay, put out your hand. Unless I put it into his side, Jesus says, place it into my side. Thomas says, I will never believe. What does Jesus say? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Every single demand Thomas had voiced, Jesus met it. Is this not compassion? That Jesus meets him right where he is? What a compassionate Savior we have. Here's the other thing this tells me about Jesus. He is omniscient. He knew everything Thomas had said. He knew everything Thomas had thought. Do you know what else that means? He knows everything you've said, and he knows everything you've thought. That's the omniscient Lord we have. But here's what is of primary importance about the proof that Jesus displayed to Thomas with his wounds and the place of the nails. It was those very wounds and those very nails that purchased the salvation of Thomas. It was those very wounds and those very nails is what absorbed the righteous wrath of God against Thomas's sin. What Jesus was revealing to Thomas was the cost of his salvation. And he's revealing it to us as well. He's saying, Thomas, by these wounds, you are healed. And when Jesus displayed his wounds, he issued a call to faith. He issued a call of response. Okay, Thomas, you've seen the evidence. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And notice how Thomas responded. Number three, profession declared. John doesn't say that Thomas actually put his uh, finger into his side or touched his wounds. He could have. 
John just doesn't say that he did. So we're left to conclude that the visible evidence alone was sufficient for Thomas to believe. And once Jesus had unmistakably revealed himself to Thomas, notice his response of faith. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus' personal revelation to Thomas caused him to immediately profess Jesus as Lord and as God. His self-disclosure completely overwhelmed any doubts or skepticism that Thomas brought to the table. We, We see here literally an explosion of faith in the heart of this doubting disciple. Thomas believed, my Lord and my God. Friends, those are two vital words to understand about the nature of Jesus. In fact, I would put forward that this is the most profound profession of faith in all the Bible. Thomas declares, you're my Lord and you are my God. Lord and God is saying he's Lord. He's saying, I'm a submissive servant to you. By saying he's God, he's saying, I am a worshiper of you. Two vital terms. And friends, this is what genuine faith involves. Genuine, authentic, saving faith is coming to Jesus as Lord and God. That's important. You don't just come to Jesus as your buddy. You don't just come believing you can put him in your pocket and go on with your merry way and say, yeah, I got Jesus in my pocket too. Coming to Jesus in authentic faith that saves is coming to Jesus as your Lord and your God. In fact, this is what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 10. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Say it again. Lord. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So John, excuse me, Thomas confesses the absolute lordship, the rule of Jesus over his life. Lord, he also says, God. He's saying, I believe you are deity. You are God. This is an unmistakable declaration of Thomas upon seeing the resurrected Christ. He isn't just saying, I believe you're a resurrected man, as fantastic as that would be. He says, I believe you're the resurrected God of the universe. That's quite a different thing altogether. And when he declares Jesus as God, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're going a little too far there, Thomas. Don't go quite that far. He receives it. He accepts the worship. Yes, I'm God. And it's also important to notice the personal pronouns here. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You see, there's a lot of people this Sunday morning in a lot of churches across this land who would confess, yeah, Jesus is the Lord. Yeah, sure, Jesus is God. I agree with that theologically, that Jesus is deity. But many of those same people would not confess He's my Lord. He's my God. Do you claim him as your Lord? 
you claim him as your God, does he claim you? Claiming Jesus as my Lord and my God impacts every area of our lives. It impacts our lives as citizens of our community and of our country. Claiming Jesus as your Lord should impact you as an employee or an employer. Claiming Jesus as your Lord should affect what kind of neighbor you are. Claiming Jesus as Lord transforms every relationship. It should transform what kind of parent you are, your mom, your dad. Claiming Jesus as Lord should completely transform what kind of spouse you are. Let me ask you, if somebody looked at your husbandly or wifely responsibilities, would they conclude Jesus is alive? Jesus is resurrected from the dead. I know that because, man, this person lives like Jesus is their Lord. And that application is not a hard one to connect, even in the New Testament, particularly for husbands. And I can say this because I'm a husband, Christian husband. If Jesus is your Lord, if Jesus is your God, you will love your wife like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He served the church. He was selfless for the church. He sacrificed for the church. He put the needs of the church before his own needs. Is that how you husband, husbands? If not, maybe you could say Jesus is the Lord, but he's not your Lord. There's this profession that's declared here. Here's the basic question. Look at this next slide. Are we living out what we profess? That's it. Are we living out in our lives what we profess to believe is true? In our habits, in our speech, in our desires, in our hearts. And again, could anybody conclude by observing our lives that we truly believe what we say we believe? And then Jesus does something that's remarkable. He pronounces a blessing. Jesus was always pronouncing blessings. In the Gospel of Matthew, his first teaching that Matthew records, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins that sermon with a series of blessings. We know them as the Beatitudes. And now here, the Gospel of John, John records one final blessing. What is it? Look at verse 29 again. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Here's the blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's a pronouncement of blessing from Jesus. If you're here this morning, has anybody here seen the Lord? Raise your hand real highly. Okay, I just want to know if we need to call, you know, the insane asylum or anything. I'm only kidding. None of us have seen the Lord like Thomas saw the Lord. Now here's another show of hands. How many believe him? Blessed. Jesus says you're blessed if you believe without having seen. Well, what are the blessings? I thought about it this week. I just started to kind of catalog. I had a long list. I consolidated it down to seven. There's many more than this. Here's some blessings of belief. Your sin before God will be forgiven. Hallelujah. What a blessing. If you believe, you're blessed in that you will have the gift of eternal life. You will be an accepted, beloved child of God. That's a blessing. You will be delivered from future judgment. What a blessing. You have the promise of a future resurrection. You will have the power to lead a 
godly, holy life if you are a believer. And finally, you will be supernaturally gifted to be used by God to bring others to salvation. All these blessings and so much more are ours when we make the same profession that Thomas made to Jesus. My Lord and my God. What a blessing. And that really leads to the final point I want us to consider this morning. Number four, purpose described. The last two verses of chapter 21 are really the finale of John's gospel. Yes, there are two more. There is a, a one more chapter, chapter 21. And Lord willing, over the next two Sundays, we'll conclude our two-year trek through John's gospel. But chapter 20 is really the conclusion. 21 is pretty much an epilogue of the book. And so John concludes chapter 20 with these two verses that really put forward the purpose of the book and the foundational principle that lies underneath all that we've studied for the last two years. Let's read them again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs that John is talking about is the miracles. We noted throughout our study seven specific miracles that John highlights, and then there's the final miracle that we see today, the miracle of the resurrection. And these signs were given for a specific reason. They point to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's the Greek form of anointed one, which is the title Messiah. And so what John is saying here, I've shown you these signs. I've described these miracles, which is just a thumbnail of the myriad of miracles that Jesus accomplished. And I wanted to show you these in this gospel account I've given so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament has predicted, prophesied, and promised. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He's the Christ. But not only is he the Christ, but he's also the Savior. He's also the Son of God. That's deity. That's pointing to Jesus' deity. Just what, John, what Thomas confessed. My Lord and my God. He says, I presented these to you so that you would believe. True authentic faith, even as I've described it here, that is the hinge upon which the door of salvation swings. Belief in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God is the hinge upon which the door of salvation swings. It says, you've believed. And what's the result of that belief? Life in his name. What is that? Well, that's certainly abundant life right now, but eternal life forever. Life in his name is certainly spiritual vitality right now, but friends, a physical existence in a resurrected body like Jesus' resurrected body for all of eternity. Thomas believed. Church history and church tradition tell us that Thomas went on to be a missionary. He actually traveled uh, from the Middle East down to southern India. In fact, there's still a society of Christians that know, are known as Christians of St. Thomas because of Thomas's missionary work in India. Uh, history tells us that he established seven churches in that area. 
But beyond that, at the age of 72, so some 40 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus, Thomas was martyred for the faith. He was speared to death by some jealous Brahmins and killed. 40 years after making the profession, my Lord and my God, Thomas was killed for that profession. But think about it. When Thomas was martyred, we know according to the Bible, the promises of Scripture, he saw Jesus again. It had been 40 years since he saw the wounds. But when he closed his eyes in a martyr's death and opened them in glory, he saw the wounds again. When he closed his eyes in this life and opened them in heaven, he saw the resurrected Christ. And I believe like I believe that upon seeing Jesus fully and finally in glory, you know what Thomas said? My Lord and my God, his faith became sight. That leads to my last thought. Christ calls us to a rational faith based on reasonable evidence, the consequence of which will be personal blessing, blessing of life now and life eternal.